You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. conspired against me. And there is no one who reveals to me that my son made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as is this day. I'm going to go out and I'm going to eat worms. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Everybody's against me. So Saul is having a pity party. He's blaming everybody but himself. What did you guys tell me that Jonathan made a covenant with him? As Pastor Dave continues his teaching series through the book of 1 Samuel, he'll be warning you against the sin of self-pity. Some of the most destructive sins that can take root in your life are the sins of self. Self-pity, self-righteousness, and selfishness in general are contrary to the life of the Christian. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 22. As he continues his message, as David hides in a cave, Saul murders a priest. You are We're going to be changed, and right now we see dimly in this mirror, but when we see him face to face, we're going to be changed into his image. The Holy Spirit is working in us, changing us to his image. It's the key to life. And I will tell you right now, everybody's looking for the key to the Christian life. Well, here's a simple one. Never see yourself separated from Christ. Never see yourself separated from Jesus Christ. Cling to him. Seek him in everything. Make him your identity. Make him your passion. Allow the Holy Spirit to captivate your heart and to do his job. The Holy Spirit's job is to conform you in the image of Jesus Christ. Allow the Holy Spirit to do that. God surrounds us with people of his calling. He doesn't always call great and powerful people to be his servants, but he calls those who have a heart towards him. Those who are eager to obey him and those who want to follow his lead. This little group that God called would be the future of the nation Israel. When David became king, they would be the future of the nation Israel going forward. Because David would be king. Make no doubt about it. What God ordained would come true. David would be king of Israel. And as I said, in 1 Chronicles 12, 8, David described these men as mighty men of valor, men who were trained for battle, men who could handle a shield and a spear, and whose faces were like the faces of lions, and they were swift as gazelles on the mountains. That's how David described these guys. Wow. Because they were with David. What would describe us because we're like Jesus? We had compassion. We loved. We had caringness. We cared for people. We loved people. We were with Jesus. In verses 3 through 4a, Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you, till I know what God will do for them. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. I didn't want to read that last, ver- that last part of it, but that's okay. David honors his mother and father, and seeks to protect them from King Saul's wrath. So he asked the king of Moab to take and give them a shelter. And even though the Moabites are very, very less favorable to the Jews, in fact, basically the Jews stuck their nose down at everybody. 
They don't like anybody. But the Moabs were some of those things. David has an in. Who can tell me why David has an in with the Moabites? Ruth, his great-grandma. His great-grandma was Ruth. His great-grandpa was Boaz. Ruth was a Moabitess. So David had an in. And they took her in. They took him in. And in 4b, it says something about the stronghold. They dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. After David secured his parents, he goes back to Adullam, and his men moved into the stronghold, which is known as a fortress. Many scholars believe that this is Masada. Many scholars believe that David might have been staying at Masada at the time because of the word and the verbiage here. The word, the, the Hebrew word is Masuda, M-E-S-U-D-A, and it means fortress or stronghold. So many people, people believe it was the fortress of Masada. Okay, it doesn't really say, but they believe that. So look at verse 5. Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart, and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. David's warned to leave the stronghold, and once again, he has to pack up and he has to flee. David relocates to the forest of Hereth, which means a thicket. Now he's really Robin Hood. He's living in a forest. He's with 400 men. He's in the forest. Come on. Did, did the author of Robin Hood steal this? No, anyhow. Could be. Now we come part to the sad part of the story. David is trusting in God to get him through this. David is trusting in God to move mightily in his life. He protects his mom and dad. He, I don't know, it doesn't say much about his brothers, but I do believe his brothers joined him with the band of 400. So they're strong now, but they're still in hiding. They're still in hiding. And I love this about David. He, at no time does he ever storm the castle. At no time does he ever try to, by rebellion to take the, uh, the kingdom away from Saul. He's totally trusting in God. And get this, folks. Think about this. God had already anointed him. He knew he was king of Israel. But he never went to Saul and said, hey, this is my throne. And God will throw you off there if you don't get off. No. We're going to see just how well David respects the authority of a king in coming chapters. David respects the authority because right now Saul is king. But this is a sad part of the story. As we begin in verse 6, when Saul heard that David and men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was standing in Gibeoth under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Here we see this guy once again under a tamarisk tree. He must have a hammock or something there because this is the second or third time they talk about this tamarisk tree that he's, that he's sitting in there. And I didn't do study about this, but there's probably something very significant about that. But anyhow, he's sitting there and what? he's not sitting by himself. He's not in bonbons. He's not sitting winging in a hammock. He's sitting there with a spear in his hand. I wonder if it's the same spear that he threw at David four times. And then he turns around and throws it at Jonathan. I mean, he loved that spear. He wasn't going anywhere without that spear. He was loaded for bear. He had his trusty spear with him. Always ready. Always ready. Let's read down to verse 8. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of, sorry, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as is this day. I'm going to go out and I'm going to eat worms. 
Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Everybody's against me. So Saul is having a pity party. He's blaming everybody but himself. What did you guys tell me that Jonathan made a covenant with him? So Saul was having a temper tantrum here. He's scheming. And he says to the guys, well, when David becomes king, is he going to give you land? Remember, Saul was a Benjamite. David was not. David was from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Is he going to give you land? No, I would. You guys are conspiring against me. Don't you see the paranoia that's coming on this guy? This guy has paranoia all over the place. But he was prejudiced against everybody. There is a small side to this, because when David becomes king of Israel, he makes Jerusalem the capital, and Jerusalem sits right in the middle between Benjamin and Judah. He doesn't play favorite with anyone. He has it right there. David has it there. A little bit of a side there that we can look at. Notice Saul's disgust for David. Doesn't even call him by name. He didn't refer to him as the man who killed Goliath. The man who killed 2,000 Philistines from my daughter's hand. The man who was anointed by God to be king. No, he calls him the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse doesn't call him. That's, that's disgust for him. And you can hear the disgust that he has for his family. David came from a family of simple farmers. Remember, Saul had wealth. Remember, as we studied when we started 1 Samuel, Saul had wealth. Saul had was well-to-do. So he calls him by the humblest name he could think of, the son of Jesse, trying to demean him in front of others. And I thought this would be an honor to David to be called the son of Jesse. I would love for somebody to call me the son of Herman. Herman was my daddy's name. That's a, good, that's a good thing to be called. That'd be a good thing. But Saul was totally in his flesh. He was in his self-focused world, and everything revolved around Saul. You ever meet anybody like that? Eh, nah, we don't have anybody around here like that. Everything revolved around Saul. Everything revolved around Saul. And if it didn't, he made it revolve around them. He made it revolve around them. He made it. He's paranoid and whiny. He was led by guilt and accusation. Even the hatred against his own son, Jonathan. My son has stirred up a servant against me. Jonathan never did anything like that. Jonathan loved his father. Jonathan followed his father. Jonathan's going to follow his father in battle and die with his father the same day. But Jonathan loved David. We talked about that last week, how Jonathan was in a rock and a hard place. He didn't know which way he was supposed to go. He could not accept the truth that David and Jonathan were right and he was wrong. So he concocted these elaborate conspiracies against him. This is true paranoia. Remember, the Spirit of God had left Saul. The Spirit of God had left Saul, so he was left to his own devices. He was thinking, he was in his head, really in his head. And he was thinking, looking around, everybody was out to get him. In verses 9 and 10, we meet up with our buddy, Doeg. Let's read 9 and 10. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Etub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath and the Philistine. First and foremost, we see here is a lie. David did not inquire of the Lord to Ahimelech. He did not do that. So first of all, you see a lie. He falsely accuses David of going to the Lord to seek the Lord's help in going to battle against Saul. So Doeg is conspiring here. And this sets Saul, boom, he's gone. This just like a volcano, just kaboosh, 
explodes. Look at 11 through 15. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Etub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. They were good priests. When the king summons you, you go. He had nothing to hide. He didn't do anything wrong. He had nothing to hide. And Saul said, now here, son of Adatub, he answered, here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise up against me to lie in wait as to this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law who goes into, into your bidding and your honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of the Lord for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to this servant or to anyone in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. Remember last week when we talked about it? We weren't sure if Ahimelech knew about this. So here he didn't. He didn't know anything about it. He was saying, wait a minute, who among, you is, who among your servants is more honorable than David? Does this sound familiar? How about Jonathan, remember? What did David do to you? David's been nothing but loyal and faithful to you. Why do you want to kill David? Remember? Here he's saying, what's wrong? How can you see this? He answers him questions. Abimelech was given truthful answers. Let's look at 16 and 17. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the kid said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priest of the Lord. I love that. I love that. The servants said, no way. We're not doing it. We're not killing him. They knew Ahimelech was right. They knew he was right. They were going against God. The paranoia has consumed him. His jealousy was over. This is what jealousy does, folks. This is what jealousy does. They don't call it a green-eyed monster for nothing. When he gets into you and you start seeing things, you start imagining things, you start thinking things are happening that are really not. You hear just enough to make you crazy. You hear just enough to make you just flip out because all of a sudden you heard something that you think associates with you. It's like going to a movies when they had cartoons and when everybody laughs at the cartoon, you go, they're really laughing at me. Really, you start imagining everybody's against you. You start imagining everybody's against you. It's sad. It's sad. I love the servants. They do the right thing. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. This was against God's law. This was against God's law. Let's look at verse 18. Our buddy steps up. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. 85 men. About the entire household of Ahimelech. He killed them all. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. But he doesn't stop there. Then he goes to Nob, verse 19. Also Nob, the city of the priest, he struck the edge of the sword, both men, women, children, nursing infants, oxen, donkeys, and sheep with the edge of the sword. I said this was the sad part. Interesting, though, when you study it, 
you find out that's kind of God's plan. It's kind of, kind of God's plan. Do you remember a man, a priest at the beginning of 1 Samuel by the name of Eli had wicked sons? There was a prophecy made against him and his household. All these priests were from that household. And the prophecy was, is they wouldn't flourish. The prophecy was they would be wiped out. And here you see that prophecy coming true. Here you see that prophecy coming true. God had in mind a priest for David. God had in mind a priest for David. It would eventually be Zadok. But before he got there, there would be another priest for David. We find that in the next verses. Now, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Atub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that I sure should tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. So here we see, Doeg does his assault on the city. He goes directly trying to get to Elimelech. David thought he was protecting himself, but he put the lives of the priests in jeopardy. Remember, David lied to the priest. David lied to the priest. Remember, I said this would come back to haunt him. Here it is. It came back to haunt him. Saul twists the truth and uses it against Ahimelech. But one of the sons escapes, and he goes to seek David for refuge. And it's interesting that David, as he goes to David, because it was David's fault, his father died. It was David's fault his father died, and he asked for help in sanctuary. And David gives him to me, and he becomes the priest in David's kingdom. Abathar becomes the first priest of David's kingdom. David keeps his word. And once again, we see in Psalm written about this event, Psalm 52. It shows how David felt. It calls a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Abimelech. David showed his outrage against Doeg in this psalm. He showed his confidence, though, in God's judgment. And he showed where his focus was, even though these priests were dead, even though he caused the death of these priests, he still focused on the Lord. He still focused on the Lord. However hard it may be, we need to focus on the Lord in the midst of the most terrible circumstances because when we focus on the Lord, the circumstance seems to get out of the way. It seems to abate a little bit. It seems to slide a little bit when we focus on the Lord. Too many of us focus on the circumstance. Oh, woe is me. Look at that bill I can't pay. Look at this that's going to happen. Look at that that's going to happen. Look at this that's happening. We focus on the circumstances and getting our eyes off of what is external to that which is eternal, which is Jesus Christ. When we get our eyes off of the external and keep it on the eternal, Jesus Christ, the circumstances fades away. I didn't say it goes away. It fades away. And there is peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of a time of terrible woe. In the midst of a time. And we look at that. This is what David's doing. David felt miserable that all these priests died and then all their families died. And, and even the oxen and the cattle and everything died. David felt horrible about this, and he laments about this. I don't want him to die. I don't want this guy to die. All I was trying to do was save my skin. Well, I'm telling you, there are consequences for everything we do. 
every time we do something, there are consequences. There are good consequences and there are bad consequences. And sometimes bad consequences last a lifetime. Sometimes bad consequences last a lifetime, even though you're forgiven. Even though God has forgiven you and has washed you clean, there are consequences. And they may last a lifetime. What would happen if Abimelech did know the conflict between David and Saul? We'll never know. We know from 1 Samuel and Psalms that David turns his heart back to the Lord. David goes back to the Lord. He asks forgiveness once again, knowing that the Lord will forgive him. And David once again becomes restored. But as I said, there's still bad fruit that remains that will come back and haunt him yet another time. Every time David makes a mistake, there are consequences to his mistakes. David never shirks the consequences. He never shirks those things that he knows are going to affect him because of his sin. He accepts them, knows that they're from God, and he accepts them, confesses his sin, and moves on. When we mess up, consequences can be lifelong. They can be lifelong. So David's hiding in a cave, hiding for his life. Men are coming to surround him and help him. And the king is getting more and more whacked. The king is getting more and more whacked. He's starting to kill innocent priests. It's unheard of to kill a priest. It's unheard of to kill a man of God. To kill one wearing an ephod, which meant he was a priest. It was a certain dress, if you go back to Exodus and and Leviticus. It's a certain dress that they wore, the ephod. It was part of their priestly gown, priestly robe. It meant there was something in God's eyes. God made priests. God ordained them and anointed them. David was sorrowful, but he moved on because he had to move on. When we have bad things happen in our life and we make a mistake and their consequences hit us, we got to move on. We can't sit and wallow in our consequences. We can't sit and wallow. Many of us say, well, I made this mistake. I might as well dive right in and make them all. That's the wrong heart. That's the wrong idea. That is the wrong idea. Sure, repent. Sure, come to God. Seek God like David did. Ask forgiveness. And then move on in the Lord. Move on studying. You know, we make a mistake. I can't go to Bible study. I made a mistake. No, that's the one place you need to be. Come to Bible study. Get prayer. Get forgiveness. Get love. And move on. Move forward. Don't stay behind. Don't wallow in your mistake. Don't wallow in your mistake. Count how many people are in this room. We can all have mistake stories. We all have mistake stories. But the Lord has lifted us up out of the muck and the mire. He's put us in his marvelous light. He said it was finished on the cross. It was done. It was finished. You're forgiven. Move forward. Move forward. Continue to go. We're going to see many, many times David does marvelous things. Then falls right on his face. Falls right on his face. But yet God calls him a man after his own heart. Because his heart was always towards God. We're so glad you joined Pastor Dave Shank today for A Sure Hope. This study in 1 Samuel has been taking you further into God's process of fulfilling promises. 
and it may not look like you'd always want it to. God gave a promise to David when he was young and unequipped to handle the magnitude of what was to come. God still gave him a glimpse to the future though, and we walked with David to help him grow and learn. God's plan included trials along with victories, but he was faithful to David throughout. Right now in our country, we are facing a trial never before experienced. Don't fear, God is as faithful to you now as he was to David. He will bring you through, and you can lean on Him for strength and comfort in the waiting. We'd encourage you to read ahead in 1 Samuel and discover for yourself how God works life out, and let Him encourage you through it. How can we be praying for you during this 1 Samuel study and during this unusual time in history? Please give us a call and let us know at 609-884-5821. Again, that number is 609-884-5821. We are pleased to be able to bring you teachings from God's Word on each edition of Assure Hope. If you'd like to hear more from this series in the book of 1 Samuel, visit assurehoperadio.com. There are several teachings on various books of the Bible available online for download, and we encourage you to share them with friends and family. That's all we have time for. Thanks for tuning in to Assure Hope.